You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions, or even the answers, are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host... Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and joining me, as always, is my trusted co-host, Ben Triplett. Ben. What up? Uh, I want to talk about some Franciscans today. Fran- Francis. Franciscans. Franciscans. Sounds like not, a type not, of pizza. Not f- <laughs> or people from San Francisco. Um, but I no, will. I, I really love St. Francis. Um, it is. He's and good. Pope Francis is pretty. Oh, pretty cool too. It is. It's a good connection you made here. So yeah, anyone named Francis? I've I've a na- like uh Frank. One of my daughter's best friends is our neighbor. Her name is Francis, and she's pretty amazing. There you go. Um, I will throw that out. So if you're ever in and around Chapel Hill, you should shout out to me because what's amazing is, uh. Frances, our next door neighbor, is a she's in eighth grade and she's in the orchestra. And the cool part about her is uh, she's decided now that the weather is nice to practice her violin outside. And I'm not meaning this with any sarcasm. That would be awesome because she's really good. Yeah. And so, like, I'll just be like working and I have my windows open and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm being serenaded by Bach today. Free music. It is. And and (laughs) and, and again, I will say that she is good. And so, so it's not like I remember like when when my um when my daughter first started playing the flute, you know, like to where it's like painful mm-hmm. to listen to kids play, and you're like, uh, no. But like this this again, this Franciscan that lives next to me, uh, has been playing since she was like three, I think. And so it ends up being yes, beautiful free art happening in and around where I live, and uh, and I love it. No, but we're not talking about folks named Francis, even though there's amazing people named Francis, like you had mentioned already. Um, Except for Francis Underwood, if you have watched House of Cards. Yeah. Uh, that guy is an SOB, and I don't know if he gets uh, tossed in with our beloved Franciscans that we're talking about today. No. Let's let's leave him out. We'll give him a pass. He's kind of an anti-Franciscan. Okay. <laughs> okay, so to start off track, we get on track. Uh, what we wanted to do, th- this all came from, and, and if you're not listening to, I, I, I've, I'm a periodic listener for Rob Bell's Robcast. Uh, you can find that also on iTunes because it's always great when you're pumping other people's shows on your show. But this is it is he did he sat down and did a conversation with Richard Rohr, and typically his show is around 45 minutes long, and this one was like it was it was way over an hour, and it is fascinating. Like I, I had forgotten from seminary like how much I love Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. and it's one thing to like read a book by somebody, but it's another thing to hear him talking about you know these things, and. Um, it just, it really, it just blew my mind how he, he was talking about, and we'll get into this. We'll actually get into some Richard Rohr today is what we're wanting to do. Uh, but what he's talking about is really this idea of an, um, alternative orthodoxy. Uh, and a lot of this is rooted in his Franciscan past. And when he begins to do this, I feel like there is a lot of life and a lot of truth. And in like the, in the previous show and many other previous shows that, that, that we've had, we do a lot of, well, in snarky terms, um, really kind of calling out 
the Christian BS and culture. If that's, I don't know if, if that's how that really, if that really encapsulates what we do, but a lot of it it's is like, it's like beef rap. It's like we're beefing with the evangelical <laughs> community. Right, right. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing. I, when you said beef wrap, I thought you were talking about like a sandwich. Oh, beef! It's like a hoagie. No, and, and I was like, yeah, it's like uh, beefing. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm an MF Doom fan. <laughs> I was really trying to figure out where that where that like analogy was. Like once I got like a beef wrap, a delicious <laughs> beef wrap, because it is around Which, it is it, around it, dinner time, and so I was thinking, I was like, ooh, that sounds good. What does he mean by that? On on MF Doom's food album, where every uh, song is named after some sort of food, the first one is beef wrap. <laughs> but he's talking about beefing, like in the rap community. Isn't that clever? It anyway, is. I'm sorry. It is. It just very very good. bad rabbit trail there. No, no, it, <laughs> it was an entertainment. I'm trying to make us sound cooler than we actually are. Yeah, it, it, no, but but with that, you're right with the beef wrap. So now I'll start working this into, <laughs> into what I'm saying. But but with that, I mean, yes, a lot of this show is trying to like tear down misconception, you know, misconceptions about what Christianity is, how it's portrayed in popular culture. A lot of times, um, well, most times, I feel like it's dead wrong, and really begin to reframe a different way to approach God, a different way to approach Jesus. And so when we're not tearing stuff down, we're also trying to give you guys, our beloved listeners, a, a different taste of things. Uh, it may be a taste that is beef wrappy, um, or, or, it could end, it, or it could end up being like a, a glass of like refreshing water when you're really thirsty for something new. Or like Eggs Benedict. Like just very tasty. <laughs> yes, yes, really Eggs tasty. Benedict. But and, uh, yes, very and, rich and compelling. Well, I would liken it to, like, when I was, I did, like, a summer in England when I was in college, and I remember there was, okay, I'm not going to, I mean, I do, I love the British people. I love British humor. I, I love anything BBC for the most part, but I will tell you, when we were, I was over there for, it was, like, it was over two months. That is the most bland food I have ever had in my life. Um, we were at a college that we, and, and there was, there's no spices on everything, Everything's friggin' boiled, and it was so incredibly bland. And we were kind of, like, dying. Like, it was a bunch of us, like, 20-year-olds that were over there. And it just so happened that a one of the, the, the guys that was in the program with us over there, his dad had been tra- he was actually traveling to London. We were in Cambridge. And, uh, again, dad, big businessman, ends up, like, sending for us to come down to, like, have dinner with him. And like, I don't even, I've never really been beckoned for this kind of a thing, but we, and he asked us, he's like, all right, you guys, he's like, what, what do you want to eat? And we're like, we would love some Mexican food because like, we have not had anything that was remotely spicy, remotely flavored, remotely anything. So let's go off the deep end here. Yes. And it was like, I remember sitting down, I don't even know if it was good Mexican food, but it was just, it was food that had flavor. And we just sat there and it was just a bunch of like idiotic college guys, but we're just sitting there just going like, oh my God. It was like, you know, it was. They were like mouth orgasms where you're kind of sitting there going like, oh, that is so good. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know that our show is kind of that version, but we're hoping to be able to give <laughs> you guys. Good. Yeah. I mean, we're like, yeah. It's like pretty eating, tasty. It's potato chips. You can't just eat one. Yeah. Um, no, but with that, like, we, we, you know, us being able to like really just give a flavor for a different way to follow after God. Um, than the one that is currently prevailing in most news outlets and most social media outlets uh, and a lot of churches today that ends up being 
something that is very just... It, well, I mean, let's just be frank. I mean, I think that when most people think of Christians, especially conservative Christians in the country today, they think of bigots. They think of angry people. They think of condemning people. Um, they think of people that you don't want to go and party with. Yeah, they think of opinionated people. Mm-hmm. Like, Hateful, angry, judgmental. I don't know. There's probably many more words to throw in there. Yeah. But that's... But that's there are point. other... Yeah, there are other... There, there, there are other streams of following after Jesus that are very different from that nasty taste that you have in your mouth. And that is kind of one of the goals that we try to do here walking forward um, with the show. And so this one is, so beginning, getting back to Richard Rohr, um, I want to just read a few things that were, will be worded well, uh, a lot better than, um, uh, than, than, than I can do, but really just about what is it, the, the Franciscan uh, spiritual. So first of all, before I read some of this stuff, that's kind of like, but what is, how would you in your own words describe Franciscans? Um, I mean, to me, I think, you know, I think in, in the orders, so like an order, I, I think I'm getting this right. I might be a little bit off, but um, the orders are kind of uh, people who take vows that are following a person that was following Christ in a certain way. Mm. And so I think it's really, and, and this is just my bias, but I think it's really important to understand the history and the per, of the person. Um, and so we are going to talk some about Francis. And to me, you know, Francis was about sacrifice first and foremost. Um, I, I think a huge part of Francis's story is him giving his clothes. You're talking and, about St. Francis. Yes, yeah, St. Francis. Francis. So keep going. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, St. Francis of Assisi. Um, he, I think he was a soldier. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer and he became a soldier at one point. Um, and he ended up giving like his, I think he cut his tunic in half, like his soldier stuff and gave it to someone and ended up, you know, eventually like giving all of his clothes to someone and walking naked. So, I mean, you're talking about as kind of self pouring, self giving, uh, to the detriment of himself because walking around in public naked, I think for everyone would be pretty embarrassing, um, except for Stuart. And uh, <laughs> so there's that sort of, you know... That, I am, I'm part Kardashian, so... Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind. No, but um, so there, there's that, like, self-giving. And also uh, one, of, one of my favorite stories of um, St. Francis of Assisi is he was he wanted to preach to people and no one was listening. So he went and preached to the birds and the animals. Um, and you, if you see sometimes like people like to put statues out in their garden of, uh, St. Francis, but I think mainly because it's like looks gardeny, but that's where that comes from that. It's this idea that, you know, God's like word needs to be heard and his creation will appreciate it because he made it and said it was good. And there's this sort of appreciation and love of, you know, the earth and animals. And I think maybe I might I might be getting this wrong. I know the Episcopalians do it. I, maybe. Um, You're talking about blessing of pets? Yeah, the blessing of the yeah. animals. Um, and that's kind of in the Franciscan, I think. Um, no, you're right. It is. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a very big connection with creation. Yeah. And so, and so that I think I think that fits well. Into that, and I know that like most people may know Pope Francis—I mean, not Pope Francis, um, Francis of Assisi—from the quote that I will butcher because it's not in front of me. But the idea of like preach the gospel always, uh, and if necessary, use words. Yeah, which exactly. is actually not right. him. 
I actually looked that up. I mean, it, it's it him was quoting someone else. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. I mean, but it's very Franciscan. So if you right. get that idea of it, um, you know, that idea that that our actions matter, not just our words, which I would happen to agree uh, with, yeah. especially a lot of the junk that we uh, like to trash here on the show. Yeah, um, and the the Franciscans, I think, wear like the brown sort of the almost sackclothy type robes and the rope rope belts, and I think that. Also, oh, like Little John. Yeah, actually, yes. Um, and and, it's, and they have like the little shave thing on the top of their head too, right? Maybe. There's yeah. a name for that too that escapes me. It's, but It's shave thing. The, okay. <laughs> but the, the idea, and, and post-Chaucer, I think we tend to think of monks as like greedy and stealing and like <laughs> fat and stuff like that. But the idea of Franciscans <laughs> is to be... Um, I, I've never thought... Keep going. Yeah. It, it, the, the point was supposed to be like giving. And I think there have been like many Franciscans that have done just great things of like giving and uh, that sort of action. It's not just action. It's like of giving to the poor and like raising money for the poor and things like that. And I actually believe... And I have no basis to back this, but I believe I've heard this before. So uh, take this with a grain of salt. I think they were the ones actually. No, that's not it. But they they did a lot of developing of, of beer. I don't. They didn't found making beer, but there was a lot of Franciscans that that have perfected different strains and stuff of beer. Maybe I know the Trappists did. Is that the Trappist monks I'm thinking of? Maybe I, I'm sure. Probably a yeah. lot of monks did. But. Okay. <laughs> they so they know how to party too. But yeah, there. So there are different like orders of monks, like Augustinians and Dominicans mm. and Benedictines and Jesuits, and um, so they're following like different vows and orders. Um, that, like they have their own sort of uh, rules, like regula that they follow. And for the Franciscans, it's a lot about like appreciating creation and giving and service and things like that. Well, and one thing you do, I mean. Okay, again, this is a huge overgeneralization. But one thing that I do love about um, about folks kind of in this vein, I mean, there is so much that um, their faith is so connected to action. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. mean, meaning that, like, I am going to commit my life to this. Uh, my faith is very well connected to my action. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that one of the things that we kind of tend to rage against, like we've done, you know, done many a show about our beloved Franklin Graham, but, I mean, that there's less action and more words, you know, to people as opposed to being like, just put your money where your mouth is and go live it out. Go follow Jesus, go help the world, go heal, you know, do this and yeah. the other type Especially of recently. Like I, I used to always think of Franklin Graham. I would associate it with operation Christmas child and wherever you land on that, I know sure. that it's very Western and like giving of gifts and all that stuff, like commercialization of Christmas. But at the very least they were like doing something for sure. people. But yeah, like recently, it has just become like the the Franklin Graham, you know, hour of like spouting off. Like on, seriously, get back to like the the third world relief stuff you're doing. Like try to do something for yeah. People. But uh, one more thing to Sorry. throw in with the Franciscans, I think that's important with Richard Rohr is um, Francis's supposed uh, uh, historians. I think they have to problematize everything, but um, his like biographer's name uh, Bonaventure. And Bonaventure, so you have like with Francis, you have the stigmata, um, and this there. Bonaventure wrote a lot about like uh, these sort of like mystical experiences that Francis had. So you also, I think, in the Franciscan order, have a little bit more of the mystical side of things. I love Bonaventure. 
I think a lot of people should read it. It's very interesting. There's a lot of really cool like imagery and stuff in it. Um, but you do have that more mystical. And so mysticism is kind of like the experience of God. Mm-hmm. Um, the It's things that are hard to wrap your words around, which I think fits very well with that sort of doing, wanting to be in service, wanting to be like immersed in the world and, um, you know, appreciating what's around you. I think all of those things kind of bleed together, mm-hmm. um, especially in Francis. I think it's really in an interesting way because you do have a nice balance of a lot of different things. Um, and finally, like with most, I think orders of, of monks um, or orders, I, I should say um, you have several different people who are just very intelligent and have, you know, come up with these new ways of seeing the world. Um, so j- just throwing like lots of different, really great talents kind of together um, and experiences and things like that. So very good words with that. And, and I'll give you a few because I looked up some in a few different Franciscan websites to be able to kind of give us uh, the basis to be able to kind of walk into this, um, laying the groundwork. And you're right. Like a lot of what you kind of said, I'll just summarize in these, and these are not my words. Uh, but it says the Franciscan emphasis on the goodness of God and creation um, has many ramifications. Creation is the outpouring of God's love into the universe. Creation reveals to us God's love uh, for us and God's beauty. Um, and the faith um, in a good God has implications uh, for the incarnation and salvation, uh, salvation history. The word of God became incarnate not because the world is full of sin, but in order to transform the world into communion of love centered in Christ. Um, so that begins to frame things in a very different way. And then lastly, I'll put this too, is it says like the Franciscan way... Um, of seeing moves, uh, the Franciscan way of seeing, it moves us away from dividing up the world um, into the good and to the bad, uh, which, as uh, it says, I think, as, as Senior Dello says, um, is always capable of identifying God's absence, but rarely consistent in affirming God's presence that is with us within us. And, and, and I, I do, I, I think that we've gotten so caught up in affirming where God is not. Right. We don't necessarily affirm where God is. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure that we're wrong, I mean, that we're correct in saying God isn't here. You know, in situations to where, like, again, we, we, we hear a lot of the stuff going on nowadays about, well, uh, it may surprise all of you to know this, but the church has become very critical um, <laughs> in many arenas. Of, of culture Sarcasm. and faith and spirituality. Um, maybe a shocker, but it's true. And, and so I think that us beginning to see, you know, it's the idea that there is, uh, gosh, who said this too? The idea, I, I can't remember, but, you know, the idea that there is nothing that is secular that can't be made sacred. And, and I think that we as humans, and even worse, we as Christians, kind of get off in being able to draw those lines. You just blew my mind. Did I really? Yeah. Oh, I it's mean, very deep. <laughs> hey, mark that on your calendars. First time ever in Sanarchy <laughs> Faith history. Stuart was deep. No, sarc- um, no sarcasm button. On um, no, but but I think that we've gotten so caught up in being able to say where God isn't, you know, that we don't look for where God is, and and I think that we're really bad at pointing out when we think He's not there. Yeah. Um, and so I think that this whole different Franciscan way. Um, is, is a very it's it's a way that honors creation. It it and and again, 
um, when, when we say creation, we oftentimes just think of the birds and the trees and the planet, you know, which is great. Like, if, if we as Christians could get on board with honoring the planet, that would be awesome because we're kind of on a slippery slope to killing it right now. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, if we could even understand that fact, that would be a huge win or a huge win um, for us. And Very classy. <laughs> but, but with that, I think when we hear the word creation, we just assume it's the environment. Uh, but when we also say that we need to honor all of creation, that also means humans. Yeah. Uh, whether and, they believe like us, whether they act like us, uh, whether they use in the same bathrooms as us, um, we're called to honor all of creation because there is that divine spark that God has put in everything. And animals. I just want to throw that out there. That's true, yeah. It's, I think it's really important. And it's funny, the more we're talking about this, the more I'm thinking that sort of this Franciscan way of seeing the world is also very Jewish. Um, mm. Just, I mean, even, you know, not to get into, I know that people like to divide themselves up on all of these types of things, but just having some sort of respect or ethic of respect for animals, um, you know, even uh, I think in Judaism, you have this, you know, even when there is like the killing of an animal, it's very like slow and belabored and there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Um, and, not that's not at all the way that I think we you know treat or eat animals um and just i guess i'm I'm speaking from my own personal like bias, but like having animals, it's like the more animals I have it, it just brings me into this weird different perspective of the world and really just appreciating all of the stuff around us, like you know we just got chickens, this is gonna sound totally ridiculous, but we got chickens and a couple of them died and it like it ruined my world for a couple of days. And before we got chickens, I really didn't, I wasn't on like one side or another. I didn't like hate chickens, but I didn't love them. And I mean, it only took like a month or two and I, I like love those chickens, you know? So I don't know. It's just, I feel like there's so many avenues of being able to appreciate God and what, and you know, what God has made and what's going on in the world around you. These things are there, but I don't think we we tend to live in such a like narrow kind of path that we don't we we have a very like minute understanding of God's love mm. um, and what what God has made and being able to take care of something you know whether it be like an animal or a plant or another human being um, you know being in relation with these things on a daily basis and having to care for them and pour into them just really like broadens, I think, an appreciation of what God has made. And I think that's part of, you know, with Francis, he's getting out and, and experiencing all these things and serving them and pouring into them. And the more he does that, the more he, he is, God is like pouring love into him. It's, it's sort of this connection between all of the things, you know, you've got the, the animals and like other people, in, in service, but then also like God loves those things because he made them and, and called them good. And so then you get to connect into God's love in a very different and broad way. So you're saying all of this means that since Chick-fil-A is an overtly Christian company, <laughs> it's still okay to eat the chicken because I'm being absolutely sarcastic and have nowhere to go with this. No, but you're Sarcasm. right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm saying everyone should buy a chicken. No, <laughs> I know I've had them before and I've, and ah, it was, it it was, yeah, 
They're, they're really fun. They are very fun. No, but I mean, even but you're right. I mean, I feel like we we get into the this whole world of extremes when it comes to um, when it comes to caring for creation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's either be like a hyper you know vigilant vegan that you know says anybody that eats meat is horrible and awful and should be put to death. You know, versus the you know super size me version that a lot of Americans kind of ascribe yeah. to that we don't like to think about where our food comes from. We don't like to think about the treatment of animals, and there needs to be some sort of a, a middle ground. Is probably not even the right way of doing it, but it needs to be more of a balanced approach to what we're doing, or just an um, openness to like stretch and yeah. an openness to cross over and understand. I think yeah, I'm glad you said that because. And also with, I think, the supersize me side, anytime you see someone who is a vegetarian or a vegan, you meet people, then you think, oh, they're crazy. You know, this, uh, that's, that's ridiculous. And then you come up with your list of things that you want to argue about um, rather than like, let's like sit down and figure out why it's important to them. And maybe that will like benefit me. You mm-hmm. know, maybe that, that perspective will like stretch me in some way to appreciate something else. Well, that like it was, we had some, we have some friends that um, I remember they referred to like what they were at the time um, really impacted my wife and I, like it was, it was many, many years ago, but they refer to themselves as garbage vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that for the most part they eat vegetarian, but if they are going to people's houses, they always eat what they're served. Uh, because hmm. they saw it as uh, when people are feeding you, it is an act of hospitality. Hmm. Um, and like they wanted to be able to honor um, the folks where they were at. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think when this couple had been younger, they had kind of been a little bit more militant with it, and they didn't realize how divisive it was yeah. um, to people's hospitality. And so wh- I, I was like, oh, man, I'm totally stealing that. And I, <laughs> and I have, and I've never gone back. Yeah. Um, no, but but really being able, you're right. I mean, being able to honor life, which is which is crazy. Okay, this is. I know we're so off topic to some degree. We will get to Richard War, but the idea that you will have Christians being pro-life and saying all life matters, we need to save this, you know. But at the same time, that we just do not care about life when it comes to the environment. We do not care right. about animals. We do not care about our eating habits. We do because again, eating habits go both ways when we're saying care about life. A, we're caring about the animals and how they've been treated and how they've gotten onto our table, you know, but B, at the same time, we're not really honoring our own life when we are uh, putting garbage in our systems mm-hmm. over and over. And Because, you don't, you know, people don't preach that from the pulpit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, they don't. They don't. I mean, the idea that, yes, we need to be healthy because if we're honoring creation, hold a second, God, you know, the life that we have is, is something that God has given us, and we need to even make sure that we're, we're taking care of that. But I think from a, just to bring it back to Francis, kind of why I like went into that diatribe of like owning animals and caring for things like plants and animals and things like that. I just think that kind of reflects maybe Francis's way of it's the experience sometimes that really like teaches you and stretches you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that really like, I think bleeds into some of Roar's way of seeing the world and what he's learned from being a Franciscan. Um, is that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with you if you don't own chickens. It's more like, <laughs> it's more like try it out. But you there know? is. Yeah, but there is. No, um, it, it's, it's try it out. And, you know, at least in my experience, it has really it stretched me in ways that, and it just sounds, again, it sounds ridiculous, but just this one simple thing 
that my wife is like, this would be a good idea. And, you know, me having a rare moment of common sense is like, okay, we're going to try this out. And it, she was totally right. It, it's been like such a blessing um, to just try it out. So I think that, so you're saying essentially it's very Franciscan in your own marriage when Kelly says this would be a good idea that you say yes. I have learned to, yeah, trust that usually pretty much almost all the time, if not all the time, her good ideas are really good ideas. Well done. I don't know if that's Franciscan because I don't think Francis had a wife, but. No, but he <laughs> did know Kelly. Um, Fra- yeah, no, I, I, would, I, I would say, yeah, Kelly and Francis are probably on, on the same wavelength. I would agree, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so diving into Richard Rohr, Franciscan that we've taken so long to get to this point. And now we are going to have to... Everyone need buckle up your seatbelts because we're going to kind of cruise through these. And here's, well, we, we set the table very well, though. So. It is. It is a beautiful table. And what, what I'm going to do here, here's, I'm, I'm going to read. So he has kind of these like seven tenets of an alternative orthodoxy. And so we will, we will read. I will read a tenet. I will let you listen to him give a short synopsis. They're about a minute long. And then we will dialogue about it, if that makes sense. And we will try to keep this in an orderly manner. And, quick, and I was quick. already, and, and also understanding uh, that you should listen to your wife when I was talking about what I was planning for the show. My wife said, this is probably going to be more than one episode. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. That makes my wife sound like she is a smoker. A Bond villain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this will be to more than one episode, Mr. Bond. <laughs> uh, no, that... That's, that's not how my wife sounds at all. Uh, I don't even know why my voice went there. But, yeah, she'd warned us this. But we, are gonna, we'll, we will expedite this um, in a way that we have never expedited before. So uh, without me babbling anymore. So the first one in, in this, and, and if you were ever interested in, in, in reading more of, of Rohr's work, this, a lot of these ideas of an alternative uh, orthodoxy comes from his book, Yes, and. Yes, and. Dot, dot, dot. Um, that was all, yeah, okay, I'm going to keep going. So, number one is that scriptures um, as validated by experience and experience as validated by tradition are good scales for one's spiritual world view. So that's kind of their methodology behind this mindset, and we'll listen to Richard Rohr talk about it. There have often been fights between Catholics and Protestants on the themes of scripture versus tradition. Catholics tended to overemphasized their own traditions. Luther came along and said, sola scriptura, just scripture. 500 years into it, I can see there's weaknesses on both sides. That in fact, we need a different formulation beyond the dualistic scripture or tradition. And this is the way I finally put it. So I'm going to read it as it's written. Scripture, as validated by experience, and experience as validated by tradition. If you put those two together, you have good scales for how to interpret Scripture in a healthy way and how to interpret your tradition in a healthy way. So it's just my way of saying it, but I think, I hope, I believe it works. Okay, so what he's getting at here, um, which is kind of, uh, both Ben and I come from a background that is Baptist in nature, 
And for you to understand, like, the idea of, like, sola scriptura is the idea that all you need is scripture to mm-hmm. be able to inform your faith and your life and your walk and everything else like that, too. And so, which is very, very Protestant, and they would be very, very, very Baptist, because, you know, I've joked before that it's, you know, the Baptist Trinity is the Father, the Son, uh, and the uh, Holy Bible. Yeah, Not exactly. the Holy Spirit, because anything, like, spiritual makes Baptist kind of feel weird and creepy. Mm-hmm. And... um they, they won't admit that. So if you ask them about that, they will not, oh, no, 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 yo, no, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, no, that's not true. It is true, but it's not true. Um, and, so, and so the idea, I think what he's talking about, too, with Catholicism, tradition was such a, tradition and practice were such a big thing. And so you end up having this. It's either about tradition, it's either about practice, and which is it, which is it, back and forth. And really what he's saying is kind of like, the if you can call it like a trinity of our of our learning and our growing faith, it's the idea that tradition matters, that scripture matters, but also experience matters. Yeah, ironically, I think that the people who who want to say just the Bible matters are actually like pretty hardcore traditional themselves. I think <laughs> that's, that they're, that's, that's very very there's true. There's a lot of tradition. You're, you're right about that. It's just you don't acknowledge it. I, when, back when I was a pastor, I'd, instead of calling ourselves um, uh, what is it? Non-denominational. We called ourselves interdenominational. But part of what I wanted to do was to get people to recognize the traditions that they came from and how they shaped the way that they, you know, read the Bible and see the world and view God. And to not, I mean, not necessarily knock those things down because I think when Paul talked about the different parts of the body, I think that it was acknowledging that there are different ways of, you know, reading scripture and uh, sort of. Um, uh, taking part in the kingdom and, you know, doing in the world. Um, but yeah, I would say from our background, uh, from I think the, the Protestant Reformation background, a lot of times scripture becomes God. I don't think Luther wanted that necessarily, but I think that that is definitely is become that in certain circles. So just to acknowledge that you come from something, I think is a huge step. Well, and, and I mean, I will tell you this, I've known many people who have walked away from the church simply because it seemed to only be about tradition and scripture and experience were not part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it just seemed that their faith and everything they were being taught was just something to bounce around in their heads, but, um, but there was no experience attached to it. Right, what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. and so that, was, that, that part was missing. So I think, I think, I think his point here is pretty huge um, within that. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in the, uh, with us being expedited, moving through these, the next one um, says, if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent, benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but God is the ground of being, and he is on our side. I actually added the he, and is on our side. I, I ended up making it. Male and God is not male or female. So the idea is somehow that God is good and with us is, is this next one. So we'll listen to Richard Rohr talk about that. We have to have a positive image of God. If our God image is lethal, shaming, negative, accusatory, there's no spiritual journey. Why would you go on a journey with someone you don't like or someone you don't trust? or someone you can't entrust yourself to. So as a Christian, my first theme is that if Jesus is the face of God, which is what we believe, then I can trust 
that it's a very good universe. It's okay. I think Einstein said that, that the first religious question is, is the universe a safe place or not? And I think what Jesus told us is that it is. I think this one, and I, I, I will probably repeat myself over and over again saying, I think this one's pretty huge. They're all huge. I know, I know, I know. Um, but, but, you know, for me, this idea that, um, A, first of all, being able to see Jesus kind of as, as a taste of what God's nature is like, mm. um, I, think, I think reframes a lot of what we think in culture God is like or what church is like, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think another point he's making, it's like post-enlightenment, you have a lot of people describing the world as kind of out of control and that the history of humanity has been to fight against the world and subdue it and control it. It's a very scientific way of thinking. And, I mean, it definitely has led to some good things, you know, um, in surgery and stuff like that. We can, you know, control certain things that have gone wrong maybe and bring someone back to life or give them, like, 20 more years or something like that. But sort of at the base of that is the idea that maybe, you know, nature is bad or out of control and that we should subdue it. Uh, Whereas really, I mean, again, uh, Francis to me is very Jewish, (laughs) Um, that the world is shalom, that the world, you know, God made the world whole. And yeah, sure, some things have gone out of whack, probably because of things we've done. Um, But that, you know, God made the world good and so that's kind of our starting point. Mm-hmm. And to not, that we don't live in, in a world with creation that we need to like subdue or control, but that we should, you know, see it as something that God has like blessed and, and called good. Well, and, and on the flip side of that, I think for us to be able to see that God is good. And I know, right. I know that's something that gets tossed around, but when I say good, that God is good and God cares for us, and God is, you know, and God is for us in the midst of all this is very, very different than a God that we are worried about pissing off. Right. You know, there is, and I, and I, like, I, I, what I'm reading into this is that there is a God that is deeply invested in humanity. Yeah, definitely. And that, I think it's reflected, like, in relationships and in, like, God's creation and and it's it's like not, neither one nor the other, but both of them reflect that there's something good underneath the surface, not something like inherently bad that we need to like struggle with or fight or sacrifice and all these sorts of things. And if I that think makes sense. no, no, no. You're right. You're right. And and again, I mean, I know I've said this on other shows before, but I think that the, our version of God, the way we view God, it ends up being extremely pagan to where God is very far away. And, and God is always on the verge of being unhappy with us. Right. You know, it ends Lightning up, bolt in hand. It is. It's like we're in a bad relationship. We never know when that person's going to go off, and we don't know how to make them happy. And, you know, we just end up feeling bad about ourselves all the time because this person we're in a relationship with is a rageaholic. And, you know, and I think that us for us to realize this, and, and I think we realize this in the nature of Jesus, even though I just don't think Christians talk about God in this way enough, you know, is the fact that God is near us, is that God is with us. Right, exactly. And, and not yeah. just us, meaning us, the chosen. <laughs> meaning me. Yeah. 
meaning me and screw all y'all. No, I mean, but meaning that God is here uh, and for humanity. I guess it's a better way for, instead of saying us. Right. Um, for all of humanity. And, and I think that is, an, is a very different starting point from us already um, kind of having that feeling that like our relationship with God is like we showed up like 30 minutes late for a lecture you know, we're always like playing catch up or like, oh gosh, what did I miss? What am I not doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, I don't fully understand any of this stuff, but I know I'm going to be tested on it someday, which is called judgment. And, you know, it ends up being that kind of a, a thing. Like, I feel like that, that in, it ends up feeling like school. You know what I mean? Like God is that teacher. You really don't know what they're always thinking and we're always trying to study and we're always trying to make sure we're going to get a grade. You're always being evaluated. Yes. Yeah, examined. And I don't think... It's true. God is not a professor. God's a gardener. Mm-hmm. Right? I would agree with that. God's about process. I think God's about walking with us. I think God is about many other things as opposed to sitting and just looking down upon us uh, like he's disappointed in us, which I think that's a narrative that gets out there a lot. So next one. Okay. We're, I'm sorry. It's so hard for us to stay on task, but we will do this, Ben. I'm, try- I'm trying to be more quiet. No, no, no. It's my fault. It's my fault. Um, we're on number three, number three of seven, and we're going to buckle down. This is when Stuart starts talking faster. Number three is, for those who sense, uh, who see deeply, um, there is only one reality. And by reason, uh, by reason of the incarnation, there is no truthful distinction between the sacred and the profane. And we will let... Dr. Richard Rohr. He's a doctor, right? I don't know. Uh, Richard no, Rohr. I don't we'll, think so. We will let Richard Rohr. Father? Uh, father. That's a better for, one. Uh, unpack that for us. I grew up, I bet many of you did too, with language of natural and supernatural, or sacred and profane. There were good things and there were bad things. Actually, That was condemned as a heresy in the 5th century, I believe, and it was called Manichaeism, that the world is divided into good or bad. Jesus, in fact, came to overcome that absolute distinction by putting the sacred and the profane together, the material and the spiritual together in himself, the divine and the human. He's both at the same time. Once you encounter the Christ mystery, and some non-Christians encounter it better than some Christians, you know that there's only one reality, and you can no longer divide it into natural and supernatural. It's all supernatural. And that one, I think, I mean, we we kind of hit on this one (laughs) inadvertently earlier um, when we were talking, but I think that that it is, it is an interesting distinction for us to begin to realize that there are no lines, you know, between sacred and secular, between us and them and all this other kind of stuff. And, and I feel like just the nature of us being uh, tribalistic people that say I'm in this tribe and all the other tribes suck um, is very damaging. And I feel like it's not in the nature of the, of the God we follow. Or just reframing the way or the emphasis on the world, not, you know, like we're here, other people are there, but more God is here, where is he? Or where is, mm. Je- you know, where is Jesus if he's incarnational? Mm-hmm. 
And, and we've talked about this, if you want to look on the website, too, that there's plenty of other episodes, especially we've talked about, like, Christian music um, or Christianity and art and music and things of that nature, meaning that for both of you and I, Ben, I feel like we've been fed more by things that would not be considered Christian music, but that we end up being fed by people's experience um, that feels truthful. Yeah. You know, that feels raw, that's that honest. feels real. Yeah, honest, that's yeah. that, that's a good way of putting Vulnerable. it. Vulnerable. Um, yeah, because I do. I think, I think for some reason, vulnerability speaks to me louder than people that proclaim they're speaking the truth, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like vulnerability has more credibility in my book where I'm at in life right now. Um, and I, just, I just feel like there's just a raw honesty to it. But we will move on because, again, we are, we are hell-bent on making sure we make through all these seven ones here, too. So number four, um, everything belongs. I love that. Uh, no one needs to be punished, scapegoated, or excluded. Uh, we cannot directly fight or separate ourselves from evil or untruth. Uh, darkness becomes apparent when exposed into the light. So let's hear what uh, Richard Rohr has to say about that. Of course, Everything Belongs was the name of one of my books. And I always said I thought the only reason that book sold so well was that people like the name, and I hope they do, because there's something intuitive in every person, pre-rational almost, that knows that if it is, if God hasn't smashed it into smithereens, then it must belong somehow. It's, it's part of the deal. It takes us a long time to get there. I don't think you tend to get to an inclusionary worldview much before second half of life thinking, at least, where you don't need to scapegoat people or decide that this race is impure or that religion is unworthy. In our school, I hope we can spend much more time naming evil and illusion. And by naming it and bringing it into the light, that seems to be the best way to, to take away its false power. Ephesians says, anything exposed to the light will become light. And it's not a matter of, of kicking people out or saying you're not worthy. It's just leading people on journeys of illumination. And then they see their own mistakes for themselves. Okay, that one I love. And if anyone's interested in talking about, uh, listening about the whole like, scapegoating thing, uh, you should go back a few episodes when, we, when I interviewed um, Andre Rabay. Um, he did a whole book on that and about blessing and scapegoating and all this other kind of stuff, which is fascinating stuff here. But what I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, Ben, um, the question I had like with listening to that was, um, um, when we begin you know, to talk about bringing light into dark places. What are words that you would use to describe what that looks like? I was just thinking of the idea of, you know, that, that bringing light into dark places, you know, looks a lot like kindness. You know, it looks a lot like restoring people's dignity. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think of like revealing too. I mean, I like that he used the light dark language because it's, I mean, there's a lot of invisibility in the world of, you know, I think we we are good at shining lights on things, but generally they're things that benefit us. 
But, you know, what are those things that we're missing by, like, fixating on the stuff that's helping us out? Mm -hmm. So these kind of hidden evils, like, or or even just who are the hidden people around us that, you know, we can hang out with and learn more from. So uh, to me, that's that kind of, like, shining a light um, stuff that's not exposed yet, but that we, you know, can kind of dig up and figure out. Um, and I feel like inclusion is part of that because mm-hmm. then you start to see um, all the stuff that you've been missing because you've been inside of your own little world. It really just broadens you. And, and I want to make also the distinction that somehow I think that we always use this um, in Christianity to, that darkness is always sin. Right. Does that make sense? Not. Yeah. It can't be people that have been people living in darkness have who have maybe been abused, who have been forgotten, who've been marginalized, who've been all this other kind exactly. of stuff. You know, who've lost hope, who's who've been depressed, who've been in these places. And it's not necessarily, oh, but you're in darkness because you've 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 had sin in your life. Which you know is what I mean? Kind of like well, like hidden because I'm thinking of yeah. like you know br- police brutality or something like that. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And now that we have camera phones, it's like exposed all over the place. So it's things like that. There's a lot of like hidden stuff. And when you learn about it, you're like, oh my gosh, what in the world? Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of like crummy stuff that goes on in the world that we're just not exposed to yet. And I think that we, yes. And I think, or that we are exposed to when we just choose to ignore. Okay. So ne- next one, cause we could talk about any of these probably for the entire episode. Uh, number five is the separate self is the major problem, not the shadow self which only takes deeper forms of disguise. And so he's going to talk a little uh, psychiatry-esque or psychiatric on this a little bit uh, about the self, the ego, um, and all that kind of stuff. So let's hop in on that because we are gunning to finish this sucker on time. We've got three more to go. I know most of us think of the word ego as a Freudian 20th century term. It's actually Latin for I, the self. And so it only became popular in the last century. Jesus would have just called it the the self that has to die. But despite his very clear teaching on that, I'd call it the false self, we've spent much of our history not addressing the ego as the problem, but in fact, the shadow self. And what I mean by the shadow self is that part of yourself that you're ashamed of, that you don't want anybody to see, that your culture has decided is terrible. So we, we split, we deny, we disguise the shadow, when in fact, it's our struggle with our shadow, by owning it, that we all have done things we wish we hadn't done or are ashamed of. It's by struggling with these things that in fact, We expose the ego, and we undercut the ego. So uh, in our school, in whatever moral teaching we get into, I hope we can emphasize the ego, the natural narcissism, vanity, arrogance, pride of the human person. That's what really blinds us, not the fact that we've made mistakes. Not the fact that you're weak. In fact, that doesn't blind you. That often gives you insight. Amazing how we were able to miss the point so well. So I'd, can we call it ego? Because I, I like the Lego my ego. Lego my ego. Lego like my it. ego. Yeah, yeah no, I like just, it. I like, yeah. 
I, I do think there's, uh, this reminds me of Pete, one of Pete Rollins' points that there's always this kind of thing that's like under the surface that we don't want to unearth because we don't want to deal with it. But just the idea that um, you know, unearthing those sort of the roots of problems, um, I think is really important. And, and it's just a part of, you know, kind of opening up, being honest, being vulnerable. Um, that in any relationship, you have to do that and have that honesty. But I think especially with God, that, you know, you kind of unearth these things. And if you're in a place where you feel safe with other people, then you can kind of do that, go through that process together. And I think it, it really kind of uh, transforms you. No, I, I, you're totally right with that. And I think that that's, this is one thing that Christianity has bungled pretty well. Um, I think that it, we've taught people that the shadow part of ourselves um, needs to be killed um, or needs to be repressed. Yeah. And I think that to do that actually ends up making it warp and get weird and uh, goes in all sorts of bad places as, as opposed to being able to, I guess what he's saying is just owning our shadow is one of the ways to be able to lead us towards transformation. Like if you think about it, like with the AA, um, you know, I think the first thing is being able to say like, I, I'm admitting I'm an alcoholic and, you know, and so that's like the beginning towards transformation. Um, I don't know. That's how I read it too. So uh, two more, two more. We can do this. We can do this, Ben. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. Do it. So number six is the path of descent um, is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers rather than um, ideas or doctrines. So on to Richard Rohr. Western civilization, because we built on the imperial worldview of the Roman Empire and the logical Greek rational ascendant thinking. It was always trying to get to greater logic or greater organization. We preferred what I call a path of ascent, that more grace, more sacraments, more sacrifice. More, more was always better. More was going to get you there. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a Western Christian who hasn't been taught to think that way. We pick it up with our mother's milk. But what's clear to me, starting in the Hebrew Scriptures and made very clear in Jesus, is that the path of descent is the real spiritual path. In other words, it's much more about unlearning than learning. It's much more about letting go than accumulating. That's a real counterintuitive message. I uh, tried to name it in my book, Falling Upward. Uh, you have to teach people how to fall. And if they spend their whole life uh, denying their falling or avoiding all falling, they never learn what upward really is. So darkness, failure, relapse, woundedness, backtracking, as the fundamentalists call it, are the primary teachers in the spiritual life. Not doing it right seems to teach us much more than doing it perfectly. So what I like about this one, um, I think it begins to put us into a different version of what it looks like to follow Christ. And and the, my quickest way of, of rounding this up um, would be that 
you know, one, one of my issues with the church today is that the churches are organized like any other business in America. And every other business in America is hellbent on success. And you do success through numbers and through cash and money and growing in that way. And, and I think what that begins to do is it, it's like what he's talking about. I mean, I feel like that we've put ourselves on this path of ascent. Um, you look at mega churches, you look at, you know, the successful pastors and all this kind of stuff. And, and it tells us this is what a successful Christian walk looks like. And I think if you begin to, if you were to compare Jesus to what we would say a successful pastor is today, they would look very, very different. I would also say that some people kind of build this like image of what being a Christian should should be. I think especially early on, you tend to have like kind of ideals that you strive towards and that as time goes on and you hopefully, you know, gain wisdom that really a lot of it is just stripping away of those kind of preconceived notions you had of what it would be, um, you know, to follow Christ. And I think that's similar to being in a relationship or, or, you know, other experiences we have in life that, you know, the longer you know someone, I think you start to get beneath those kind of superficial things that you first, you know, came into the relationship with. Um, and, you know, you, you get underneath and underneath is this sort of thing that's hard to talk about, but it's like connection, intimacy, vulnerability, communication, like connection. Um, so, and, and, and that's kind of a stripping away of the superficialities, hopefully. And hopefully, but those are the places where the good conversations happen. Yeah, absolutely. If you know, notice that. Um, yeah, those are the, those kind of things that tend to stir you when you're having conversations with folks that you've gotten to that place with, where you're able to kind of strip out ego, strip out... Um, ego. Ego, sorry. <laughs> when when sorry. you quit saying Lego my ego, um, <laughs> those places... No, but where you're able just to kind of just be yourself. Right. And you're able to be honest. And you're and I think those are the life-giving relationships that you can have um, in there. And we've approached this. Number seven, Richard Rohr is number seven. Uh, kind of tenets, I guess you'd say, of alternate orthodoxy. Number seven is reality is paradoxical and uh, complementary. Uh, non-dual thinking is the highest level of consciousness. Divine union, not private perfection, is the goal of all religion. So let's listen to this last one, and then we will tie this up as neatly as we can with a bow. My blog was entitled by someone on the staff, Unpacking Paradoxes. And only in my later years have I come to realize that has been an obsession most of my life that for some reason I'd always see the other side of every argument. And in, I wouldn't usually talk about it. I'd just keep it in my own head. But I'd be saying, well, there's another way of looking at that, or that isn't always true. Uh, I especially had to do that to survive in a Catholic seminary, which is just sort of keep your doubts to yourself. But uh, afterwards... I was given the freedom to really work to unpackage some of those. And when you don't split, but you hold the tension, this is partially true, and this is partially true. You don't have to take sides. I just found that that has probably been 
what has led me to more wisdom than anything else. And oftentimes, it was staying with an issue for years, unresolved. But I, for some reason, most often, avoided taking one total side and condemning the other side as totally wrong. And I think that's non-dual consciousness. I think it's contemplation. I think, not that I was there, but I do think that is the highest level of consciousness. And if you look at the greatest doctrines of, of Christianity, or really any religion, you'll see that they almost always have a character of paradox to them. Now, we were just raised to say, well, they're mysteries, don't think about it. We're told to believe it, but not to think about it. What they were really trying to say to us is learn how to think paradoxically. If they'd said it that way, instead of just believe it, <laughs> I think we would have raised up a lot more wise people. So uh, that will almost be an underlying methodology in the living school. We want to wrap everything in a contemplative stance, a contemplative practice, a non-dual knowing, which I think is another word for faith. Yeah, I appreciate that because, you know, I, I think he's saying to live in the tension rather than, again, we always talk about like distance and proximity, but um, he's talking about living in the tension rather than kind of living outside of it and just accepting, you know, oh, that's a mystery. I'll just believe it. But really like getting in the, mid in the midst of the tension of those paradoxes, um, that's where growth occurs. That's where transformation and, um, you know, experience and, and those sorts of things occur. Well, I love, I love how he was putting that. And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, in lieu of fully, fully, <clears throat> excuse me, unpacking all of this, uh, what we will do is Ben and I are talking about um, doing an entire show on unpacking paradoxes and talking through different paradoxes as part of our Christian faith. So if you hear this, uh, hop on our Facebook and give us some paradoxes you'd love us to talk through on that. And as we get to the end of this broadcast, just a reminder that you can catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, we're on iTunes. Just go out there and look for us. We love to engage with you guys, but that is all the time we have this week, and we will catch you again next week. We are out of here. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com. Dot com.